My name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I guess you do have the tradition here of uh, announcing a sobriety date. I suppose if you don't, you don't have one. (laughs) The last time I had to take a drink of alcohol or any of its substitutes was the 3rd of September, 1962. For that, I'm I'm infinitely grateful. It's very easy for me to stand here and say that that's through the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm standing here today. But as easy as that is to say, and as simple, almost cliché-ish as it is to say, it's a most profound truth. Because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous not convinced I was an alcoholic at all. Not at all. Now, I'll tell you, a low-grade moron followed me around wearing a tight hat. For about 24 hours, he could have told you exactly what I was. But I didn't know that. I thought there was something else wrong with me. (laughs) And I thought there was something else very, very much wrong with me. But the message, the message is this, that if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous for whatever reason and and at one point or another manage to open the mind enough to let the truth of this program punch its way through, you might just be as fortunate as I am to be able to stand here and tell you that I haven't had to take a drink of alcohol or any of its substitutes since the 3rd of September 1962. And for that, I am infinitely grateful to you to the programs of Alcoholics Anonymous, and most of all to God as I understand God to be. I'm nervous. I always get nervous when I stand up here. I generally drink three or four cups of coffee, which helps my nerves before I stand up here. <laughs> Most alcoholics are geniuses. I'm no exception. <laughs> so before I forget, since I do have a uh, quick forgetter, uh, I'd like to thank Don. I know Don passed on, God rest his soul, for calling me and asking me to come down and share with you this weekend. I'd like to thank Ray, certainly Mark and Michelle, my good friends, uh, who are going to come up to New Jersey and visit us. And Jerry and Donna and Darlene for hosting me today at the airport. Uh, I appreciate that so much, so much. I'm looking forward to hearing our other speakers. It's good to see my old friend uh, Clancy here. And uh, I've heard Frank before, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the program uh, very, very much. I know why I get nervous when I stand up here, other than that I drink too much coffee. Uh, The one thing you got to do at an AA meeting, and the one thing that makes it work, is to tell the truth as best you can about what it was like, what happened, and what you're like now. Now, that's a hard order for an alcoholic. As my sponsor used to say about new drunks, if the lips move, they lie. Don't worry about it. They just do. You can always tell. But if you do what I do for a living, I'm a criminal defense attorney, and we never spread the truth around too carelessly, and we save it strictly for emergencies. When all else fails, pull it out. <laughs> uh, to, to, to quote my friend Clancy, when the hounds are at your throat, then you use the truth. But I will try to tell you the truth. I'll try to tell you the truth about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I'm down here to, this weekend with a with a fellow that I served in the Air Force with. He uh, drove down from Fort Walton to uh, catch up with me. We're, uh, we have a sponsor relationship, don't we, Flip? <laughs> and uh, it's just delightful. It's 27 years ago I met this man, 26, 27 years ago, and we've, uh, we've been fast friends from that day to this. Uh, we were both wearing the same uniform at the time we met, and uh, we met in AA. Uh, I've been here for a few years. He came in, and he hasn't had a drink since. He hasn't had a drink since either. It just works that way. It works just right. If you let it. Let me start in by telling you about my last drink first. Uh, the last drink of alcohol I took, I woke up in a uh, 
you know, the morning after the night before, I woke up in a dark room. And I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and I wasn't sure if I was getting up or going to bed. And uh, <laughs> thought I was in my bachelor officer quarters room at McGuire Air Force Base, because that's where I was stationed. I was part of an air crew. At the time, I was a, uh, well, I was, uh, <laughs> I wasn't much of a crewman, but I was, <laughs> I was commissioned, and I had a pair of wings on my chest, and I was the crew navigator at the time. And uh, I woke up in this room, and I thought I was in my room at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. And I sat there with my brain operating in slow time. Uh, uh, simply means that uh, probably somebody would have to help me with my name. You know how that is when you, when you wake up. And I looked around the room and uh, realized that it wasn't my room because there was wildlife on the walls that was different from the wildlife that would be on the room of my bachelor officer's quarters at McGuire Air Force Base. And there was a person in the bed beside me. Uh, that I never saw before in my whole life uh, was a woman. I have to add that now, right? <laughs> and I got up and went outside and I looked around, and I knew I was in deep, serious trouble because where I was was in Africa. And I don't know what part of Africa I'm in, and I don't know how the hell I got to Africa. I can tell you this, I look like a marshmallow on a coal pile. <laughs> All alcoholics are geniuses. You know there are certain things you can't do when you find yourself in a position like that. You cannot walk up to somebody and say, pardon me, sir, can you tell me what country this is? <laughs> do you know what day it is, plus or minus 15 or 20? Uh, do you know my name? Do you recognize me? <laughs> So you skate around and, uh, you know, sidle up to people and uh, try to start a conversation. <laughs> this is a nice town. <laughs> yes, it is. Have you lived here long? Yes, I have. Do you like living here? Yes, I like Addis Ababa. <laughs> I thought, aha. <laughs> Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We're getting warm. I reached in my pocket and I found a uh, key that said Royal Haile Selassie Hotel, uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Certain things began to come back uh, to me. I was uh, there with an Air Force crew. It was during the Congolese uh, uprising, and we were taking United Nations troops in and refugees out. And uh, I don't remember that I came over there with the Air Force. And uh, <laughs> went back to my hotel room and the... Uh, Air Force was gone. Uh, I'd lost a couple of days. I misplaced them uh, accidentally, of course. Uh, now, obviously, they came back, or you'd have somebody different standing up here tonight, you know, just for openers. But uh, I sat in that hotel and took a couple of drinks of uh, alcohol to calm my nerves. And those were the last drinks of alcohol or any of its substitutes that I've had to take from that day to this. Now, let me tell you something about that. Nothing special happened. Absolutely nothing special happened to me that day, other than what I've told you, which is probably special by some standards, but uh, <laughs> nothing special happened to me. I just didn't take a drink of alcohol that day. I didn't intend not to take a drink of alcohol that day. I just didn't. I didn't take an alcohol, a drink of alcohol the following day. I decided that I would stay sober until I got back to the States because I'd been to a couple of AA meetings uh, prior to going over there. 
I got back and went to some AA meetings and didn't take a drink of alcohol. And pretty soon, 30 days goes by, and then 60 days goes by, and 90 days goes by, and you're sober. You're sober. I'm sober. I don't have to take a drink. Up in New Jersey, they had a little ceremony. They uh, had the AA logo on a little lapel pin, the triangle. And on the top of the triangle, they had a G, and in the bottom two corners was uh, an A and an A, and in the middle was a dot. And they had a little uh, ceremony that... Uh, went something like this. Uh, you've got 90 days. We give you this pin. The G represents God. The two A's represent AA. The dot in the middle is you. If you stay there, you'll be all right. And then they put it on and everybody claps and you're allowed to talk a little bit. <laughs> I uh, had been in the armed forces at that time uh, somewhat over 10 years. Never once got a good conduct medal. <laughs> Here I am, sober in AA for 90 days, and I'm decorated, so I'm not leaving. <laughs> and uh, it kind of went like that for me uh, at first. Uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit and uh, tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, it's probably important to do that. I learned I was an alcoholic by listening to people talk about alcoholism and their background in rooms just like this. I was lucky enough to be able to sit in the back of rooms like this and listen to people talk about alcoholism their alcoholism, their drinking, what happened to them, came to understand that that's the symptoms of alcoholism that they're projecting, and that if they're uh, their symptoms, maybe they're my symptoms too, and if they can recover, maybe I can recover, but that's kind of the general way this process went forward. But in any event, I grew up in upstate Pennsylvania. Uh, I grew up in an Irish Catholic culture. My parents were Irish Catholic. My father was an Irish Catholic. My father came from County Mayo. My father was a Gaelic speaker. He was an old fool as far as I was concerned at that point in time. He was a coal miner. He was illiterate. He was a, 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 I look back, he was a lovely man. But I grew up there. I grew up on welfare, what we used to call county relief. Now we call it welfare. Uh, when I was old enough to get out of there, which was age 17, uh, the Korean War was on, and uh, I'd seen all the John Wayne movies, uh, snuck into most of them, but I saw them all, and I had to get to Korea before that war was over. <laughs> I have to tell you, I got there, I was there one day and I wanted to go home, but you can't do that, so. I did enlist in the armed forces. I went to Korea, spent a year there, came back, was sent to Corpus Christi, Texas. I'm a bit of a test taker. Uh, I can take tests. That's not a virtue, that's just the way it is. It's, uh, if anything, a gift, and it's not really a good gift, it's just the way it is. Uh, if you could give me a test, I think, on atomic energy, about which I know nothing, if you let me read it from beginning to end, I could probably pass it if it was multiple choice. But I was uh, in the service uh, in the Navy about two years at that time when I came back from uh, from Korea, sent to Corpus Christi, Texas. I was a second-class petty officer because I'm a test taker. I look back to that place, that time, and I can tell you that the first symptoms of alcoholism, as I understand them to be today, began to appear in my life, and they began to appear in my life probably the same way they appeared in yours. I didn't set out in life to be a drunk. I never met a person yet that said, I, really what I want to do when I grow up is be an alcoholic. I never met a single soul that said, what I really want to do with my life is puke on my shoes, <laughs> spend all my money, lose weight, have everybody after me, including the IRS. You know, I never met anybody that said that's what they wanted to do in life. I'm sure there's an exception, but I haven't met that exception yet. Uh, but that's what we usually do. That's where we go. I look back to that time in Corpus Christi, and I can tell you the first symptoms of alcoholism, as I understand them to be, began to uh, pop up in my life, because uh, like you, and like most of us, I can remember doing things that were initially downright silly, uh, 
uh, progressed rapidly to the idiotic, see? And that seems to me what we do best when we're drinking. We go from stupidity to idiocy and back again and, you know, a side trip, side trip to, to absurdity. But that's what we do. I was a hot shot, uh, I thought, at the time in my own mind I was a hot shot. Uh, I always took great pride in standing tall for duty, showing up when I was supposed to show up, staying in shape. You know, the whole schmear that guys that get into the military kind of get into. I remember the first time that I messed up. I fell asleep on the way back to the base on a Sunday night uh, in a cotton field with a white uniform on and uh, didn't wake up till noon the next day and uh, uh, ran back to that base. I knew I was AWOL and I ran down to see this chief petty officer who was kind of a father figure that I worked for and apologized for putting him on the spot. Uh, he kind of laughed. He patted me on the behind and said, ho, 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 don't worry about it. All good sailors do that and <laughs> go take a shower and come to work. Well, you know, about the 15th time I did that, he didn't say, ho, ho, ho. He just didn't. He called me things you've been called. Uh, you know, a nut, a disgrace, a slob. <laughs> Another language that I don't particularly care to use here today, but uh, I heard it. I heard it. And uh, that's what I was. Uh, been around AA a while. And it occurred to me that uh, you can hear the most outrageous descriptions of behavior from podiums such as this or in AA meetings from people who are not stupid. Uh, maybe they're even intelligent, you know? And I always wondered how we can go to the depths we go to, otherwise fairly intelligent human beings. And I don't mean anything fancy by intelligence, just that, that if you put your hand on something hot, it burns, you take it off, you know? I don't mean anything fancier than that. But I look back to my relationship with that chief petty officer, and I can tell you exactly how I got to go where I went. And the way it worked was this. One day, when he was on my back for what I was doing, it occurred to me, just like a revelation from on high, it occurred to me that what was wrong with me was his fault. <laughs> it's him. <laughs> He's to blame. Now, if you can do that, if you can blame others for what's going on with you, you can get airborne with this disease, you know. <laughs> you can take it places. If you can do one other thing, if you can get to the place, as I did, rather quickly, where the only voice you listen to is the voice of the idiot that lives in your head, then you can get into orbit, you know. For instance, one time I was walking down the streets of Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, uh, very much ashamed of this, but one day I was walking down the streets of Corpus Christi, Texas, about three o'clock in the morning, uh, drunk, and I saw this woman's wash on the line. And I was walking down the street by myself because nobody wanted to be around me. If you sleep in the top bunk and come in with a belly full of booze and you don't get out to go to the bathroom and it leaks through on a guy below, they don't want to be around you. You know, it's those kind of things. So I'm walking down the streets uh, of Corpus Christi at three o'clock in the morning, having a conversation with the idiot that lives in my head. Saw this woman's wash on the line. The idiot said, why don't you take those clothes? I said, good idea. I took them all. Men's clothes, women's clothes, pants, brassieres, slips, shirts, you name it. It was there. I took it. Then I put it all on. And walked down the street at age 19 like I was ready to fly with my hands stuck straight out. Probably singing. Now, if you do that, you will 
magnetize the police officer. <laughs> and if you're like me, that cop will say to you, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> That's over 40 years ago. I still haven't thought of an intelligent answer to that. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. But I went to jail. <laughs> and I woke up in jail. And I looked over in the corner of the uh, cell, and there was uh, a pile of uh, laundry there. And I had vague recollections of where it came from. And uh, right on top was a bra and a pair of panties. And I said to myself, you didn't do that. And the voice said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> well, even the judge laughed, just like you're laughing here uh, at me. Uh, and I didn't get into too much trouble as a result of that. I was told to go back to the base and sin no more, and I was glad to get out of there and go back to that base. But I knew something, see. And it's probably important for me to say that to myself as well as to say it to you. I knew something. I knew, not so much that I was in jail, but why I was in jail, see. And I knew that those guys back at the base that I wasn't getting along with were going to find out why I was in jail. And I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. So in order to bear the pain and the shame that comes from the trouble you get into drinking, I took another drink of alcohol. I was already an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic and you take one drink, it seems to me that sooner or later you must drink to excess. There don't seem to be any exceptions to that. You must drink to excess. If you're the kind of an idiot I am, sooner or later you're going to get into another jam. And to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame that comes from the next jam, you'll take a drink of alcohol. And sooner or later, drink to excess, and sooner or later, get into another jam. And that's my case history. In a nutshell, I wouldn't have to tell you anything else about it, other than to tell you this. As with every alcoholic that I ever met, ever, as time goes on, the jams get closer and closer together. <laughs> if you have standards of behavior, you say to yourself, a human being doesn't do certain things, a man doesn't do this. If it comes between you and taking a drink, you'll do it. You'll do it. If one of your standards as mine was, you never ever steal from people you live with in the barracks. If you're broke and somebody leaves their wallet out in the bunk, you'll do it. And about the 15th time you do it, you won't bat an eye if you're like me. It's no mystery to me that when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous, we feel like we're moral lepers. I did. I did. I look back at it and I see that that's a natural progression of things. A natural progression of things. I used to go to great lengths, as I'm sure you did, to turn over new leaves. <laughs> I heard a guy say one time the only person that ever had any luck turning over leaves was probably Adam, you know, with Eve. <laughs> but I would go to Great Lens to try to turn over new leaves every once in a while because I couldn't stand where I was. Uh, one time I saw a notice on a bulletin board that said, uh, Fleetwide competition for appointments to Annapolis, the Naval Academy. And I knew I was a smart boy, so I said, that's for me. And I uh, applied to take these tests and did take them. And, and lo and behold, passed them all. And... Uh, since I was a Korean War veteran, I got one of those appointments to Annapolis. They gave out about 20 of them to the enlisted ranks that year, Navy and Marine Corps. And I got one of those appointments. And I have to tell you that I wasn't too surprised. Uh, I thought that's the way life is supposed to go. <laughs> I'll go through the academy. Somebody's recognized my genius. Uh, I'll graduate. I'll be an ensign. In no time at all, I'll be an admiral. No time at all. And I'll get a battleship. <laughs> And get all those guys that have been getting me, see. <laughs> and that was the plan, and that was the way it was going to go. Only between the time that I uh, received that appointment and the time that I was to report, which is about five months later, 
I went out to celebrate something. It might have been the fact that I got the appointment, or it might have been just because it was Tuesday, but I went out to celebrate. And uh, I stole a car um, for the first time. I stole an automobile, and I stole an automobile not knowing how to drive an automobile, and never having had to drive, never having had a driver's license. Uh, the keys were in it. It was outside of Gin Mill, and an idiot in my head said, why don't you take that car? And I said, good idea, and got in it. This was in 1953, maybe 54, <laughs> stick shift. I knew how to get it started. I got it in the first gear and got it going down the road. Only I didn't know how to get it from first gear to second gear. And if you go down the road in first gear at about 30 miles an hour, it sounds like an airplane trying to get off the ground. And if you do that, you'll draw a cop, I guarantee you. And I did. Bubble gum machine spinning. Pulled up right behind me. Just as cool as you could be, I'd pull that car over to the curb. Uh, and slid over to the passenger side. <laughs> I'm the only one in the car, but I thought, what the hell? It uh, seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, that did not impress the police, so uh, I opened the passenger door and got out of the car and crawled under the car to hide from the police who were watching me do it. <laughs> And they sat on the curb and waited for me to come out. And uh, I went to a jail. And I lost my appointment to Annapolis. And I uh, <coughs> remember this time the judge did not laugh. Uh, he didn't have a sense of humor. He lost his sense of humor. Uh, the Navy that I hated, the commanding officer I had who was a maniac, uh, the chief petty officer who was Satan himself, uh, all came down and said to the uh, court, don't uh, put this young man in a Texas prison. He's a Korean War veteran and uh, give him back to us and we'll court-martial him. <laughs> and uh, they did. You know, they did. And, 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 and they should have and they did. And looking back at it, that was probably one of the better breaks I got at the time because I didn't have to do any time in a Texas jail. And I got to stay in the service, and uh, time went on like that. Things went on like that with me. Uh, as a result of that incident, I quit drinking. Uh, I wasn't able to say this is bad luck. <laughs> I wasn't able to say this is my parents, or this is being raised an Irish Catholic, or this is being housed with a bunch of maniacs in the barracks. This was nuts, and booze had something to do with it, so I quit forever. I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism, didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism, never read anything about it for years later. But I quit forever. And my forever lasted about two weeks. You know? And the reason it lasted two weeks is I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. I can remember that. I didn't want to drink. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand being sober. Every frustration that I experienced in the first day, every fear, every resentment, when the second day came along, I'm the kind of a person just piled it right on top. And you know, if you can add and subtract, when about five days go by, and there's five days' worth of frustrations and hatreds and fears piled one on top of the other. It seems to me that if you know alcohol works, you're going to take it. <laughs> you're going to take it regardless. So I took it, and life went on. I used to say I got out of the uh, Navy after four years, uh, 
I, I, I also got busted, but, but I, but I, I had to get out. I thought I, I used to say I got out uh, because I didn't want to stay in. The truth is I wasn't allowed to stay in. I went back to the hometown I had up in the hills in Pennsylvania. I left a mixed up teenager. My parents saw me come back a raving maniac. I ran in and out of the back doors. I stole another car. Uh, the other car that I stole was the only police car in the town, and I'll tell you, if you, if you do that, it'll get you their attention big time. And they said, leave her else. That's a town of 600 people. I was related to 300 of them at least. My mother was one of 16, my father one of eight, and, and they all lived in the same town, and I knew everybody in the town, and they knew who did it. They, they knew which idiot did it. There was, there was just me. So I left. Uh, I kind of got lost in America uh, for a while. I went to New Jersey, got a job in an automobile factory uh, spraying cars. I got drunk too often. I got fired. I went to Philadelphia, got a job in a machine shop, got drunk too often, got fired. I went down to Baltimore, got a job uh, flipping hamburgers, and I fell asleep in the chili, and I got fired. And, uh, <laughs> I went to Washington, D.C., and got a job, and, uh, you know, just kind of working my way through through life. Uh, I grew a beard. Uh, I let my hair grow long. Uh, this was in the 50s. It was hip in the 60s. Uh, in the 50s, it wasn't, you know. Uh, I was hip before I knew it was hip to be hip, if you know what I mean. So, My teeth started to rot out of my head. Uh, I had plans. I thought I'd go to college on a GI Bill, but next semester. Right now, I need to have a drink and, you know, do some things. And all I did was live in rooming houses and rented rooms uh, and drink. I remember thinking one of these days you have to save money and buy yourself some decent clothes. And I got a drink and never bought any clothes. I never bought a car. Uh, never had a date. Uh, met a few women in bars. Uh, coyote dates. <laughs> uh, they got the worst end of the deal, I'll tell you. I had breath, I know, that would wool flowers. Uh, teeth were gone from my head. I fell asleep one time and let cigarettes fall down and burn holes in my chest. Uh, I got locked up four times in that town. got locked up for the silliest things you could imagine. People would get locked up for drunk driving. I'd get locked up for drunk walking, you know. <laughs> walking down the street and I swear the cops would see me and they'd pick on me. And I'd always make sure that I gave them a piece of my mind. <laughs> As a result, I went to jail, and I paid fines, and I got to the place where nobody put up bail. I couldn't get out. You know, I'd go, I'd stay. That's it. You're going to stay. I got fired from the last job I had. Uh, I used to try to get even with cops for doing these things to me. Uh, I used to set off false fire alarms. Uh, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and hide and watch the police and the fire engines come. And I got the SOBs. Uh, one time I turned in a false alarm right across the street from this rooming house where I lived in northwest Washington and uh, ran around the corner and climbed a tree to wait for those cops to come. And it's January. There's not a leaf on that tree. <laughs> 200-pound canary up in the tree. They shine their flashlight up and say, come down. Who, me? <laughs> Go to jail. Another time I was in a bar, drinking with an old woman that uh, was not quite as bad as me, but almost. 
and I stole her pocketbook. And I had a shirt on, and I just put the purse in the back of my shirt, hanging there like a knapsack. And she saw the, sh- the purse. And she said, give me back my purse. And I said, what purse? I was a hunchback. <laughs> so the cops were called. And the cops said, give her back her purse. And I said, what purse? You know? If, if you, if it goes like that, you're gonna go to jail, and I don't, you know, so much for you. You go to jail. You go to jail. Finally, I fired. Uh, I'm sitting in a park in Alexandria, Virginia, and I look across the street. What I'm about to tell you next is kind of improbable, but it happened nonetheless. There was a poster there as I'm sitting in the park with a pair of coveralls on and rotten teeth, a beard, and long hair, and very bad breath. Uh, and the poster said, join the Air Force. And I thought, that's for me. <laughs> I went over to join the Air Force, uh, and the, uh, the recruiter wanted no part of me. I have to tell you, no part of me at all. But I insisted. So I'm a citizen of this country. <laughs> I'm an honorably discharged veteran. I didn't tell him I didn't have an honorable discharge. I just told him I had a general discharge under honorable conditions. So I think to get rid of me, he gave me his tests. And he made the biggest mistake of his life because I passed the tests. And uh, I enlisted in the Air Force. I got my teeth fixed. I got a haircut, a shave. I got some meals. Health began to return. I was in about three months. Uh, they called me up and said, would you like to take some additional tests, Air Force officers qualification test, uh, flight aptitude test, and a two-year college equivalency exam. And I uh, said, why not? And uh, took them and passed. And uh, not very long thereafter, I had a, an appointment to the aviation cadet program. Uh, it was about a 15-month program, as I recall, to uh, train you to be either a pilot or a navigator and to uh, get a commission. So uh, I entered. I was a marvelous physical specimen. Uh, I couldn't move hardly, but I entered anyway. I vomited a lot, I have to tell you, the first three months when they made us run. <laughs> the whole squadron would be running around that track, and there'd be one dot way down in the middle. That was me way down the end there, falling down, getting up, falling down. But health returns. You know what I mean? If you don't drink and you're young, health returns. So I go through that program. I graduate. I have fixed teeth. I have a... Second lieutenant's bars on my shoulder, a pair of navigator's wings on my chest. I go to my first duty assignment, McGuire Air Force Base. I'm a distinguished graduate of that program. I thought, I can't be an admiral, but I can damn sure be a general. (laughs) I've arrived. uh, You know, if I can't get a battleship, I'll get a bomber, but I'll get those SOBs that have been getting me. You know, somebody's recognized my genius. I show up at McGuire Air Force Base right out of flight school. I'm welcomed aboard because I have terrific grades. I have to tell you that the colonel welcomed me aboard, and I have to tell you that three months later he had me under arrest. Because when I got there, I forgot all about drinking and started to drink again. And I had the worst episode of drinking that I ever had in my life, because within nine months I'd been locked up in the local jail like four times. I'd gone to Philadelphia on maneuvers and got locked up in jail in Philadelphia. He had to come get me out of that jail. I ruptured some varicosities in my throat. I was 28 years old, but ruptured varicosities in my throat and lost so much blood that I had to be hospitalized for a month. Uh, Drunks do things like that. I began to uh, have visions. (laughs) Um, 
Sometimes I had visions on airplanes uh, when I try to get sober. And if you really want to get their attention, uh, have a vision on an airplane, you know? Where did that mouse come from? <laughs> what mouse? The one that just ran out of the instrument panel. <laughs> they look at you like you're nuts. And you are. You are. You are. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I got court-martialed. Papers served on me. I was restricted to my barracks. I was down to about 150 pounds. I drank cheap gin and cheaper wine. I always loved wine and gin. Uh, I used to mix them up sometimes. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first one that ever said this, but I'll tell you something. If you drink gin and wine, cheap muscatel wine and gin, you can lay right in the gutter and puke straight up in the air. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can duck <laughs> before it comes down. Same routine. Same feelings. It's them. It's that lousy, stinking colonel. It's that rotten SOB that lives down the hall from me. It's bad luck. It's still being born an Irish Catholic. It's still having the wrong parents, but it's them. And who cares? And I was in my bachelor officer's quarters room at McGuire, and I shared a bathroom with the guy that lived next to me. And I used to say, that's when I found AA. But you know, that's not true. That's when AA found me. And it found me this way. One day I was on the floor of that bathroom, uh, with blood running out of my nose, uh, and crying, and so weak I couldn't stand up. And uh, the guy that lived next door to me, who was probably the only guy on the base that uh, that seemed to have a kind word for me at that time, was standing in the doorway of the bathroom uh, that we shared. And I mean, he, he did his penance by sharing a bathroom with me in those days. Uh, and I was crying, and I said, uh, my God, I've got to stop drinking. And he said to me, do you mean that? And I said, yes. I meant no, but I said yes. <laughs> this was 1962. There were no rehabs. Alcoholism was not treated as a disease in the military. I hadn't heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't know anything about this stuff. Didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism. But Kurt might have been the only guy on that base didn't do anything about alcoholism because Kurt's father was an alcoholic and Kurt told me about his father he told me about his father going to a Texas prison for kite and bad checks for two years he told me about sitting on his father's chest when he was a kid while the old man went through the DTs trying to pull the lizards off he told me about being raised by relatives because his parents got divorced as a result of his father's drinking and he told me about his dad going to Alcoholics Anonymous and never drinking again. <laughs> and I know what's coming. I'm no dummy. He says to me, you should go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Actually, he said, you should go to AA. And I was incensed. And I said to him, as indignantly as I could, do you think I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> he did what you did. He cracked up. And he said, and I'll quote, I don't know, Ed, but they'll never turn you down. 
So if you're one of those of us that are sitting out there and you think that you're not quite so bad, we won't turn you down. <laughs> you will do till the real thing comes along. So sit, relax, enjoy yourself. If you think you've got a problem with drinking, you probably got a king-size problem with drinking. Because you can have a hell of a problem with drinking and not think you have any problem with drinking, as I did. Kirk calls AA. He makes arrangements for us to meet the guy that's going to be the president of AA. <laughs> We're going to meet him in the Salvation Army building in a little town outside the base. He smuggles me out in his car. I have a black eye and a fat lip because I have a big mouth. <laughs> and I have the shakes. And we get down to the Salvation Army building to meet the president of AA. Because he told us that's where he'd be. And we walk up to the door and there's a sign above the door of the Red Shield Club. Salvation Army Club for... GIs. Love the Salvation Army. I love them. I love them. They gave us homes. They gave so many of our groups up north homes, places to meet. I love them. But there's a sign above the door that says, uh, well, it's tacky. It's tacky. And, and I'm an atheist, and I can't see this. And I see the sign up the door that says, and I'll quote, when your knees knock, kneel. <laughs> now, that's the best advice I ever got in my whole life. But at the time... At the time, I thought, this is the sawdust trail. This is what it's come to. The tambourines are coming out, you know. And, uh, I'm hip. <laughs> I may have a fat lip and a black eye and bad breath again, but I'm hip, you know. I'm not this. But Kurt's bigger than me, and he's behind me, and he's a lot stronger than I am, and I'm weak. So I go through the door. We go up to a Salvation Army captain who had a bum leg, and he limped over to us. Captain Blair. Uh, who was a delightful human being and a, and, a, and a saintly man, I came to find out. He limped over to us. Can I help you, young gentleman? <laughs> yes, Kurt says. We're here to meet uh, Joe, the president of AA. <laughs> well, that's him over there in the corner. <clears throat> now, uh, I looked over in the corner, and if I didn't want any part of this deal before I got there, I really didn't want any part of this deal when I saw who was over in the corner, because I recognized the guy in the corner. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I recognized him. Uh, I've had a lot of people say I've had, it's, it's, it's entirely appropriate that we should have the theme of sponsorship this weekend because probably the most significant event in my life I'm going to tell you about. Uh, heard a lot of alcoholics say, I have a sponsor that's just like a sergeant major. You know, he never gives me any slack. Well, let me tell you something. I had a sponsor who was the sergeant major. <laughs> Because sitting over there in the corner was the meanest man on McGuire Air Force Base. I mean, the meanest man there. He had stripes from his elbow to his shoulder. Everybody on that base below the rank of full colonel was afraid of him. He could holler at a private a hundred miles away, and he'd hear him and he'd come to a screeching stop. I think he enlisted in the Army with Custer. He was in that long. I can't get out. I have to go over and sit down. He says to me, do you drink? Yes. <laughs> How much do you drink? A lot. <laughs> How much is a lot? I tell him. He says, yes, that's a lot. <laughs> do you want to quit? And I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yes. I meant no, but I said yes. He said, when? I think any answer other than right now, and he would have told me to come back, but I said, right now. Good. Sit down. We'll talk. Finally, he said to me, uh, 
By the way, what's your rank? Because I had a raincoat on, a T-shirt, and a pair of khaki pants. And no rank. And just as arrogantly as I could say it to him, I said, second lieutenant. Now, i got to quote his answer because it defined our relationship from that point on. Uh, and it's a little bit profane, but it's not bad. I have to say it because it's the way it was. And he said, and I quote, I'll be a son of a bitch. I've been waiting 20 years to get my hands on a second lieutenant. <laughs> So he took me to meetings. He went to see my commanding officer and got permission to take me out to meetings. I had to be back by midnight or I'd turn into a pumpkin, but I could go to meetings. Go sit in the corner, be quiet. <laughs> Finally, I got a little bit of sobriety. They chopped me out like a prize pig, you know, and let me say one or two words. And that was it. As far as, as far as I know, I was the first of the higher paid health they ever had in AA. Uh, I mean that. I think it's true. I think I was the first one. <laughs> Officers didn't have drinking problems, you see. Just me. Uh, I got drunk a few times. I told you about the last one I had. And now I didn't take any drinks anymore. I went to lots of meetings. I went to meetings with sergeants from the Army and the Air Force. I saved up enough money in nine months that I could buy myself a new car. I gained about 30 pounds, and I looked good because I went back to working out, and I looked good. Women began to smile at me. <laughs> I liked that. The commanding officer uh, smiled at me once in a while because I wasn't coming in with puke on my uniform and black eyes and fat lips. And I'd show up on time and I'd do my duty and I'm not a bad GI when I'm sober. I wasn't about to take these steps because I was an atheist and I thought, this is tacky. You know, this is so tacky, this stuff. Uh, write down every rotten thing you ever did in your life, not on your life will I do that. Nor would I tell you uh, about it, ever, under any circumstances, never. Never would I breathe a word to you about anything but it works fine just by going to meetings so why toy with that and I didn't and I stayed sober on momentum for several years I think I strung the string as far as anybody can string it but that's the way it was with me I was just arrogant enough and prideful enough and enough of a pain in the neck and a pain elsewhere to, to, to do it that way now I'd probably be that way to this day were it not for the fact that uh, I have the kind of a personality, sober, that gets your attention, see. And, and, and it's the kind of a personality that's subject to the wrong day syndrome. Those of you that have gone through this know what I'm talking about. You know what the wrong day is, right? That's when you get up in the morning and before you put your feet on the floor, you know the SOBs are after you. Whoever they are, they're after you. On the wrong day, if I walked into the squadron operations office to check on my next flight, and two guys were standing in the corner talking. And if they shut up when I walked in, they were talking about me. <laughs> now, if you let me think about it for 12 hours on the wrong day, I could tell you exactly what they said in the matter. You know, I didn't hear a word. <laughs> if I brooded on it for 24 or 36 hours, it was time to put a hand grenade in their desk. You know, and uh, tie the pin to the handle of the desk. And when they open the drawer, it'll explode and they'll die because of what they said about me. Even though I hadn't heard a word. On the wrong day, if you're driving down the street with your new convertible, if you like me, and a teenager cuts you off, if it's the wrong day, it's time to do mayhem. Cut him off. Get a tire iron out. Bang his fender in. Teach that young snot-nosed so-and-so a lesson here, you know, and then take off before the cops come on the wrong day. And You know, you do that a couple of times, and you'd say, yeah, that's nuts, but don't let it happen again. Uh, uh, 
I was sober several years, maybe maybe as much as three years. I can't remember for sure the exact time without drink. I mean, going to AA meetings and taking new people to meetings and all that stuff. And I had my last really wrong day. Uh, somebody sicker than me told me that my good friend Andy, who I hung around with, was talking about me. And that was the wrong day to tell me that. Because I knew what he said. You know, didn't matter. I knew what he said. Uh, and I brooded on it and uh, went to my meeting. And he came into the meeting and smiled and said, How you doing, Eddie? Put his hand out. And I smacked him in the mouth, see? And he got up and smacked me in the mouth. And uh, we rolled around on the floor at the meeting. Uh, <laughs> setting a good example for the newcomer. <laughs> Then I did what all good drunks do. I went out and sat by a tree and started to cry. Uh, went to see my sponsor and told him I was going to get drunk. This AA is not working. He said, yes, you are. And I said something to him that, that might have saved my life. I said to him, I don't want to do that. I've been around AA long enough that the gift of not drinking, the gift of sobriety was precious to me. I didn't know it, but it was precious to me. I said, I don't want to do that. He said, you're going to have to. Unless, and the unless was that I started to do things that he had been suggesting for a long time. The things that I was supposed to do was to go through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as best I could with him. And I didn't want any part of this. But I said, okay, okay. I think I was desperate enough that I said, okay. It's a wonderful word, okay. If you say it to your sponsor, you don't have to know how, you don't have to know what, you don't have to know if. Just say, okay. I explained to him that I was an atheist and that the first three steps of alcoholic, well, the second two steps of Alcoholics Anonymous didn't apply to me. <laughs> and he said, I don't care about your opinion. <laughs> I'm really not interested in your opinion. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have, you know, asked you a long time ago, but I never ask you. I don't want your opinion. And he said to me, what does the fourth step have to do with God, hotshot? And on his face, I had to admit nothing. And I said nothing. And he said, why don't you do that? Why don't you write that inventory then? And I said for the second time in my life, okay, in a minute. How do you do that? I don't know how to do it. Pointed me to the appropriate section in the big book. I think it's pages 66 through 72, but don't hold me to that because it's right there someplace, right at the end of chapter 5. <laughs> and he pointed me to that section, and he pointed me to the 12 and 12. And he told me to write down the names of the people I hated and why I hated them. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I learned more, I think, from that single exercise than maybe from anything else. Finally, he said to me, uh, why don't you start with the worst thing you ever did? And uh, probably like you, I know what the worst thing I ever did was because it was here. Uh, I wasn't paying any attention to it, but it was in my throat, man. As soon as he said it, I knew what it was. The worst thing I ever did in my life. It stuck in my throat like a bone. Worst thing I ever did in my life, I did to my father. The worst thing I did in my life, I don't want to tell you about, but I must. Uh, I was the oldest son, uh, the oldest of five children. My father was a decent, decent man. Uneducated, simple-minded, wrote to me when I was in Korea in almost illiterate script, uh, cared what happened to me, never punished me, <laughs> never did a thing wrong to me, never did a thing wrong to me, ever. He and my mother loved me. The worst thing I ever did in my life, I did to him. As I was being run out of my hometown when I stole that police car, 
He was a black lung coal miner. Uh, tall as I am, weighed about 80 pounds. Uh, couldn't get out of bed, he was dying. And with the peculiar logic of the alcoholic, uh, he was lecturing me on my behavior. A little bit. And with that kind of god-awful logic that goes with alcoholism, it seemed to me at that time that what was wrong with me was his fault. So I told him. I told a man that was dying that uh, he was the sorriest excuse for a man that I ever saw. That uh, the worst thing that ever happened to me was to have him for a father. And that if I never saw him again alive, that'd be okay with me. And big tears ran down his cheeks. And I left. And I never did see that man alive again. And that's the worst thing I ever did. <clears throat> ever. Uh, in my life. Uh, I don't usually do this, but I don't... Uh, <clears throat> I can't help it sometimes. Uh, and I wrote that down. And I wrote down other rotten things I'd done. Wrote down the names of the people that I hated, why I hated them. I went through the cardinal sins, as is suggested, and tried to get away from the debate society. Then I went to see a priest, because... Uh, he couldn't squeal. <laughs> Got in a confessional line, you know. Fifty people behind me and I want four hours of his time today. <laughs> nice man. A really nice man. Yes, 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 yes. Say four fathers, four Hail Marys. You're okay. Welcome back. God bless you. He also told me if I wanted to see him and talk, he'd give me all the time I needed, just give, make an appointment. But I walked out and that didn't do too much good. <laughs> so I went to see my sponsor, a man I respected, maybe the only man in the world that I respected. More importantly, maybe the only man in the universe whose respect I wanted desperately. And I sat there and told him what I told you. And I told him every other rotten thing I'd ever done. He crossed and uncrossed his legs a few times. When I was finished, he said to me, Is that all? And I thought, I've made the confession of the century. And all he says is, Is that all? And that's all he said. Is that all? He shared a little bit about himself, about some of his sins, for lack of a better word to use. I don't know of a better word. He told me a little bit about himself. And from that exercise, I have to tell you, <laughs> I have to tell you a couple of things. Uh, I'm one of the guys that, uh, and I know it doesn't happen with everybody, but maybe I was just desperate enough or sick enough or messing with this thing long enough. I'm one of those guys that had a tremendous sense of relief. A tremendous, a tremendous sense of relief. Once I shared with another human being what I'd done. Very imperfect. Very imperfect. But when I was done sharing with him, I felt a tremendous relief. A tremendous relief because it's probably the first time in a lifetime where I lifted the rock to attempt to see what was there. <laughs> you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, and it certainly wasn't very good. But it was the first attempt in a lifetime to see what was there. Found out two things. Got to share them with you. One, and I hope you're listening. <laughs> I really hope you are. I never committed an original sin. Let me repeat that. I never committed an original sin. Neither did you. Neither did you. If you think you did, you haven't talked yet. Enough.
second, I found out that I could share this with another human being that I respected and not be rejected. I have to tell you, folks, that was my ticket into this fellowship. I'd been around it. I'd been a member of AA. I'd stayed sober. But this was my ticket in, and I have to tell you that. And that ticket in was given to me by my sponsor, who insisted on giving it to me and insisted on punching the ticket. As a result of that experience, I went back to uh, the beginning uh, with the guidance of Joe. Master Sergeant Duguay. Sergeant Major Duguay. And went through these steps as best I can go through them for the first time with him. When I was finished with him on this fifth step, he said to me, uh, i got to tell you about this. Your mother's still alive? I said, yeah. Does she know where you are? I said, no. Does she know you're alive? I said, I don't know. When's the last time you saw her? Four or five years. Why don't you go see her? Okay. Why don't you write to her first? We don't want that poor woman to die with you showing up. So I wrote to my mom. And I went to see my mom. And my mom is like Dillinger's mom. My Johnny's not a bad boy, you know. <laughs> Welcome home. Come in. I had a couple of big brothers that uh, they were younger than me, but they were big guys, and they weren't too forgiving at first. But uh, I kept going back. One of the great gifts my sponsor gave me was a relationship I had with my mother because she lived for 10 years after I got sober. And I was able to go home from all parts of the world and see her. In fact, I was able to get home... Uh, during her last days, and uh, Mr. Flip was with me <laughs> at the time up at Eglin when I got a call and went home to see my mother, who was dying, who had a stroke and couldn't talk. And I was able to stay there, massage the food out of her cheeks when she couldn't swallow, hold her hand when she was frightened, tell her I loved her, <laughs> and be, be what I wanted to be more than anything in the world, really, with my parents, a dutiful son dutiful son, a peculiar gift from God as I understand God to be, to be able to maybe in a peculiar way go back and be able to do with my mother what I couldn't do with my father, you know, and maybe I could pardon myself then, and I could, and I can pardon myself because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and because when all the arrogance was finally squeezed out, I was able to listen to the tremendous wisdom that comes through this fellowship, to the tremendous wisdom that comes through this fellowship, sometimes from the voices of people you initially think are idiots. <laughs> if you listen, if the cotton is out of your ears and in your mouth and you listen, if you've suffered enough to listen, sometimes the secret of life comes to you. You know, the message of redemption, really, really. I stayed in the Air Force. I had a pretty good career. Uh, I was part of the Apollo program for a while. I had all kinds of good experiences. Uh, in my 40s, I decided that I had to get out and do something else because uh, God was telling me to do something else, not necessarily uh, moving finger writing, but, uh, but do it. And the thing I was supposed to do was get out, go to college. I'd never been to college. Uh, then go to law school, become an attorney, represent people that can't afford to represent themselves. And uh, 
I have to tell you, on faith alone, I was able to put one foot in front of the other in the help of a lot of people, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, I'm a test taker. It wasn't that big a deal. Uh, I did go through law school. I've been practicing law for 15 years since I retired from the... Uh, I've been retired 20 years, but for the last 15 years, I've been uh, practicing law. I uh, am the chief public defender in my county. Uh, I have a good reputation. I do exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and I'm not selling that idea. It's just I do what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and I'm at peace with it. I'm seriously married. <laughs> uh, I have a good wife. We have a 15-year-old at home. Uh, he's a stepson whose father was killed in the Air Force and uh, was killed when he was a little guy. Uh, she can't be with me. She'd love to be with me. I know she would, but she's <laughs> she's got to stay home. I get to come down here and spend some time with a man I love, Flip. And other people that I know here and love, uh, Lorraine, or uh, <laughs> our pom-pom girl. <laughs> Everybody says, you know, what happened to those pom-pom girls when they were uh, that we knew in high school? There she is. <laughs> I love you. What's this about? If I could sum this up, I'd have to tell you, as God gives me the light to see this. This program is about love. It's about truth. It's about pardon. It's about generosity if you participate. And ultimately, it might just be about redemption. It might just be true redemption of the Spirit. The chance to be maybe what we all want to be when you boil off all the crap that we pile up and all the images that we push up there, you know, to keep other people out. Maybe what we really all want to be more than anything in the world is just decent, you know. Brothers and sisters, one to the other. Maybe I just want to walk in the footsteps of those guys that helped me. They were all NCOs. They were all sergeants. They're all dead. <laughs> They're all dead. I stand in their footsteps. I'm their product. I love the Salvation Army. We'd have our meeting in the Salvation Army building. I'd hear the hymns. One of them I always remember. Always remember it because I'd hear it. <laughs> oh, Lord, I reach my hand to thine. No other help I know. If thou withdraw thy hand from mine, wherever shall I go? Almost 35 years ago, these old sergeants reached their hand out to me, and they never let go. I understand today, totally, that they were the keepers of the flame. And they did what AA suggests we do in its simplest and purest form. They passed it on. So it's in their name that I stand here. It's in their name, not mine, that I thank you for the opportunity to speak. And it's in their name that I congratulate you all. Thank you.